Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Remember, tonight at 6 p.m. at the Ferndale Public Library, we are going to continue the WDET book club discussion of Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See. We have had a really great summer of discussions all over the metro area about the Flint water crisis, about infrastructure, about environmental justice and racism. We're going to continue that tonight. And our guests include ACLU investigative reporter Kurt Guyette, who did a lot of the very early and important work uh, exposing the Flint water crisis, exposing the causes of the Flint water crisis and the consequences. We'll also be joined by Oakland County Water Commissioner Jim Nash, who's going to talk to us about the water issues they have in Oakland County and especially the infrastructure issues that lurk beneath the surface uh, here in southeast Michigan. So we would be really glad if you come out and join us tonight again, 6 p.m. at the Ferndale Public Library. All right. Uh, In observance of the 400th anniversary of the first African slaves arriving here in America, the New York Times has unveiled an extraordinary body of work that looks at the connections between then and now. Project 1619 is mind-blowing. It is deeply reported and incisively written. And it calls us to account for the profound shadow that America's original sin casts over modern American life. It asks us not so much to lament slavery or even to assign blame for it, but to contemplate ways in which modern inequality is tied directly to the millions who were brought to or born into American slavery. Times reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote a very personal essay as part of the project. In it, she tells the story of her family and how it exemplifies the long journey of African Americans to freedom and equality and then to frustration— Her piece also asserts that the African-American struggle is a battle to perfect American democracy. Nicole Hannah-Jones, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to start with an excerpt from your piece. Uh, You say it would be historically inaccurate to reduce the contributions of black people to the vast material wealth created by our bondage. Black Americans have also been and continue to be foundational to the idea of American freedom. More than any other group in this country's history, we have served generation after generation in an overlooked but vital role. It is we who have been the perfectors of this democracy. I would love for you to expand on what you mean by the idea of African Americans as the perfectors of American democracy. Uh, Absolutely. So when we think about uh, the fact that when Thomas Jefferson was in Philadelphia writing the words of the Declaration that all men are created equal and are born with inalienable rights, that at that time he owned 130 human beings. And in fact, his enslaved brother-in-law was there with him to make sure he was comfortable as he was writing those words. Then we understand that from the beginning, these great ideals of this democratic republic were formed assuming that one-fifth of the population at that time would receive none of those rights and privileges, that they would be in perpetual bondage. Uh, The Constitution not only codifies the institution of slavery, but also um, 
denies the right to vote to most Americans at the time it was written. Women could not vote under that constitution. Black people and Native people could not vote under that constitution. So when you look at the role of Black Americans, Black Americans from the beginning took those words literally. They read the Declaration and said the Declaration is a call for abolition because you cannot found a country based on equality and alienable rights and maintain slavery. And again and again, uh, really throughout our entire history, black Americans have fought, have died, have waged an internal battle in this country to make the ideals of the Constitution and our founding real for all Americans. Mm. And that is a singular role that black people have have played. Uh, and of course, in the coverage uh, of the 1619 Project, uh, what the Times is doing, I think, is, is again, calling us to account for the ways in which uh, not only that founding, but of course, the struggle over the last 400 years shapes the way that we live today. It shapes the narratives uh, that take place uh, and are unfolding in in modern America about race and equality. That 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 these are not things of the past. Uh, these are things that live with us even now. Absolutely, the the sixteen nineteen project is not a history. It is an assessment of the modern legacy of slavery, the modern legacy of our decision in 1619, before the pilgrims even landed Plymouth Rock, to purchase that first group of uh, Africans and enter into a system of slavery. So when you uh, read the magazine, the entire conceit of the magazine is that almost nothing about modern American society has been left untouched by the legacy of slavery, even though it has been rendered largely invisible. And it looks at various institutions from health care to why we don't have uh, universal health care, to why we consume so much sugar, why there's so much traffic in Atlanta, why our modern political system is so dysfunctional, the very geography of our country, and then, of course, my piece, which is arguing uh, our democracy itself, that if you look across modern society, you will see everywhere that you look, if you really study it, that there is some link either to uh, slavery or the anti-black racism that developed around it. So it really is a way of saying, you know, answering that common argument that you hear all the time, slavery was a long time ago, uh, get over it, has nothing to do with the present. Um, this project is showing that that is not true, that we have never dealt with that legacy, we've never dealt with that harm, and that if we're going to say that 1776 is foundational, then we have to acknowledge that 1619 is foundational, and that we can't pick and choose which parts of our history we're going to remember and that we think are important and which parts of our history we think we could forget. Uh, and of course, in your piece, you also use a personal narrative to, to, to illuminate that point that you just made. And, and I have to say that was uh, the part of the piece that resonated, I guess, the most with me. I, I'm somebody who uh, all the time tells the story of my father, who's born uh, in 1933 in Mississippi. Uh, he grows up to join the Air Force and go serve in the Korean War. Uh, and then he comes home to Mississippi in the 50s and is not allowed to vote. He can't sit at many lunch counters. Uh, yeah. He can't have many jobs that uh, that exist uh, in, in in Mississippi at that time. And it's it's not until his mid 30s that uh, that the law, the the, the legal landscape, uh, makes him uh, an equal citizen uh, in America. Um, uh, you know, and I I always say, look, this is not some ancestor I read about 
in a book somewhere. This is the right, first man I knew, right? Uh, this is right. the person who raised me. Uh, you tell uh, sort of a similar story about your family and its history in your essay. Absolutely. So your your story about your father and my story about my father are such a common uh, Black American story, which is that Black Americans have uh, really, from the beginning of this country, when a Black man who has run away from slavery becomes the first person to die for in the American Revolution, to die for a country that would not give his people freedom for another 100 years. And Black people have continued in that tradition, disproportionately enrolling in the military, under this belief that if we showed that we were willing to die for our country, maybe our country would finally recognize our full citizenship and treat us as Americans. It is such a common story. And then the common story is that these black soldiers who would go abroad fighting for democracy and freedom for people outside of our country would come home and they couldn't even wear their uniform in public in the South without being concerned that they would be abused or beaten or sometimes killed. Um, this is the story that I tell it uh, in my piece, and mm-hmm. I talk about how you know my father flew this American flag in our front yard, and he flew it proudly, and he was very proud to be an American. He had, he had joined the military, and he was deeply patriotic. And I, as a young person, was very embarrassed by that patriotism. I did not understand how a black person from Mississippi whose mother had to flee just so she could enjoy basic rights of citizenship um, and then, of course, moved to the north, as you know, your Detroit listeners will know, uh, and did not find a promised land. Instead, found a, a system and architecture of Jim Crow that looked in very many ways similar to what we saw down south. That how could you have uh, this experience in your country and still have such love of country? And the piece is really an exploration of my, as an adult, coming to understand that no one has more uh, right to claim that flag than black Americans, who both in wars abroad and in fighting a sustained war of resistance uh, within our own country have played the vital role of perfecting this democracy. When we look at you know, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, when we look at uh, all of the legislation that comes out of the civil rights movement, that doesn't just guarantee rights for black Americans, but guarantees rights for all marginalized people in this country. Um, that is something to be deeply proud of. And when we think of our ancestors who, when Abraham Lincoln is trying to raise money to ship uh, formerly enslaved people out of the country of their birth, they said, no, our family's bones, our ancestors' bones and blood are buried in this sod. This is our country. And it really is, um, I'm trying to help this country and black Americans themselves understand that this is our country to claim as much as anyone else. Um, and it's time that we stop uh, being treated as a problem. Mm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a domestic correspondent for The New York Times and creator of the 1619 Project, uh, a commemorative section of The New York Times that takes a look at the history of slavery, which uh, celebrates its 400th anniversary on the American continent this year. Uh, the Times uh, is trying to get us to think about the ways in which that founding, uh, far ahead of 1776, shapes modern American life, shapes all of the narratives 
that we engage in right now about race and equality. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones here. Uh, Tell us if you've seen uh, the 1619 Project. Tell us what you think about the idea of talking about slavery today, talking about the way in which slavery influences American life today. Is that something that you think we need to do? Or is it something that uh, maybe you are tired of hearing? Uh, Are you somebody who thinks uh, we ought to get past this idea of talking about slavery and try to deal with race and racism in a modern context? Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Nicole, before we get to, to calls and uh, comments, I, I want to ask you about the pushback that I've seen uh, to this series, which caught me a little by surprise, i got to say. Uh, I, I, I felt like the Times was, was pretty judicious in the way that it stuck to the idea that this is fact, this is truth. Uh, these are things that happened, and uh, these are the ways in which those things affect life today. At the same time, uh, we've got a lot of conservatives who have said, look, I'm, I'm tired of talking about this and that it is fantasy to try to connect what happened in 1619 to what's going on in, uh, in 2019. I wonder, I wonder what your reaction was to that reaction to this project. I mean, that reaction was not surprising to me. We are trying to fundamentally reframe the way that we have thought about our country and the way that we have thought about black Americans. You know, when you think about our creation myths, our creation myths are that um, a group of colonists wanted to be free and they had to fight a war so that they could be liberated from England and then go on to found the most liberatory uh, democratic nation the world had ever seen. Um, Black people are the inherent contradiction to that creation story. Our very existence here gives lie to that creation story. We are not immigrants who chose to come here looking for a better life. We are uh, people who were enslaved and forced across an ocean and forced to labor and bondage for generations. So um, centering our experience really kind of unsettles that national narrative, and I can you know, it is the least surprising thing that that people who are very wedded to that idea of American exceptionalism uh, would be opposed to this. Uh, but what's interesting about the arguments is they're not arguing the facts. Right. They're not arguing that we are making things up. What they're arguing is, uh, I think one quote was that we are trying to delegitimize America. That's not what we're trying to do because unless you believe black people are not Americans. Um, then I don't see how showing how black people have actually believed in the ideals of the Constitution and the Declaration and have fought to make them true in any way delegitimizes the country. Um, What we are doing and what we say is that it's time in this 400th year to tell this story truthfully. If we're not ashamed of it, if it's uh, not something that we feel we should hide, then why can't we have an honest conversation? Because trust me, I don't have to tell you no one wants to be able to get over the legacy slavery more than black people because black people are the ones who are still suffering. <laughs> right. We're still effect. dealing with it, right. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's not something that benefits us, but we can't get over it if we're not going to repair and acknowledge the harm. And that's what uh, this nation has long refused to do. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We get a lot of uh, Twitter comments congratulating the Times uh, on, on the coverage uh, and talking about 
uh, how how uh, expansive it is. It says it's yet another name. Uh, Amy on Twitter says it's yet another stain on this country that we aren't taught the full truth about the harms deliberately done through present day. Ignorance is a tool of evil, oppressive conservatives. That's a pretty strong comment there. Uh, Amy uh, Vents on Twitter says incredibly informative project. I wish this important part of our history was mandatory curriculum. Uh, in our public schools. Uh, let's go to the phones here. Let's start with Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to the show. Good morning, and thank you for having this um, conversation. Uh, Stephen, I just wanted to say I don't think that we should frame it as a dichotomy of speaking um, of slavery back then versus race relations now. I think it's a continuum, mm-hmm. and it can't be separated. You can't separate the discussion of race relations now from the origins of of slavery in this country. And um, I also just want to say for the record, I don't care if people are are tired of talking about it. I'm sick of living with it. (laughs) And um, if you want to do some some good, I think conservatives need to talk to each other and get each other pointed in a different direction. Yeah. Terry, uh, thanks very much for the call. Uh, and the comments, uh, Nicole, that that reminds me to, to ask you about what you hope at the times this uh, this project achieves, uh, this idea of conversation, this idea of who needs to have conversations about race and with whom, uh, I suspect, is some of what uh, went into the planning and execution of, uh, of this project. Yeah, I think the whole project is an argument about uh, a reckoning, an argument to say we have uh, decentered this, we have marginalized it, uh, and we're suffering for that. So what I hear again and again, even from people who have studied this history, is that they have learned so much that they had not made these connections. Good and, morning. you know, I'm a journalist. My job is not uh, activism. I can't try to fix the problem. But we certainly are not going to address the legacy if we don't even acknowledge it and acknowledge its modern harms. And that's what we really see this project is doing. You know, its project means very different things for people depending on who they are. For Mm -hmm. white Americans, um, in many ways, it is the first time they are able to see their country for what it really is. And for black Americans, I think they have taken a tremendous pride uh, in being centered in this story and, and finally not being treated as problematic to this country, but as treated as some of the original founders of this country. Hmm. Uh, again, Terry, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's quickly get to Walter in Gross Point. Walter, what's on your mind? Good morning. I want to thank the New York Times and, um, and Hannah Nicole. I've loved your work for many years on school issues and so on. Um, and I hope that the Times actually puts this collection together. I haven't even gotten through all of it. It's so <laughs> immense. But um, I hope they can put publish this actually in book form or even ebook form because I think it's that important to the um, to our nation. I have one small question, and maybe you've covered it somewhere that I've missed yet in the material. Um, actually, the Spaniards brought slaves 50 years earlier, whenever they settled at St. Augustine, Florida. Mm. Um, the Spaniards brought Africans as slaves, my understanding. And I wondered, was that any... That's not obviously a 400th anniversary issue. Right. Um, but I think in our time, when we're particularly dealing with particularly Latinx migrants, 
the intersectionality of hmm. the question is not simply um, English, Anglo-Saxon Europeans and Africans, but actually, uh, you know, from the uh, peninsula of Spain and Portugal, who also in the Americas yeah. and uh, and including in Florida and the Southwest. Yeah, uh, uh, Walter, the Walter, that's a great question. Uh, uh, Nicole, uh, talk about the, the, the date here, 1619, uh, and, and how you settled on that as uh, the reason or the impetus for, for, for this work and not uh, previous uh, previous iterations of, of uh, slavery on the, on the American continent. Right. Well, we were not founded by the Spanish nor the Portuguese. We were founded by the English. By the English Our entire sure. you know, political, social, and legal system was founded by the English, as it was the English colonists who break away from Britain and uh, decide to form the United States. So arguing, you know, that there were other enslaved Africans and other European powers on the continent at the time is not where slavery originates in what would become the United States. Yeah. Florida does not become a part of the United States for several decades uh, after the uh, colonists decide to declare independence. So uh, this is an examination of the roots of uh, enslavement in the United States and how it shaped us from our very beginnings. And that is why we chose 1619, um, because that is what is foundational. It is not uh, simply enslaved people walking on uh, the North American continent. It is how it became a part of all of the structures uh, of what would become the United States. Yeah. Okay, Nicole Hannah-Jones, domestic correspondent for the New York Times and creator of the 1619 Project. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, up next, we're going to continue our WDET Book Club conversations about Dr. Mona Hanatisha's book, What the Eyes Don't See in the Flint Water Crisis. We're going to talk with United Way of Genesee County CEO Jamie Gaskin, who played a key role in the way that there was the response sort of mustered to this incredible public health issue. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Detroit Today.